You are listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Allie Fitzgerald-Smith. This podcast is brought to you by the Richard Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Charlie Jung Studio at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. This is episode four in a six-part series called The President's Club, which parallels an all-new special exhibit at the Nixon Library. On today's episode, we are breaking with format a bit and discussing two different pairs of presidential friendships. We'll start with the unique mentor-mentee relationship shared by President Eisenhower and his two-term vice president, Richard Nixon. And then we'll discuss the friendship between JFK and Richard Nixon, who were contemporaries and at times rivals. Joining us again on this episode is the curator and author of the President's Club exhibit, Bob Bostek. Bob, thanks for joining us. Always good to be with you, Allie. Thank you. So when I think of President Eisenhower and Vice President Nixon, I immediately picture the iconic Ike and Dick 1950s campaign buttons. That is where my history books picked up on the story of their friendship. Is that actually where it began? Yes, that is where it began in 1952, really at the Republican National Convention that year. Um, Eisenhower, of course, was probably the most popular and revered person of his time, having led the led the Allies in the Second World War in Europe, Supreme Allied Commander of uh, the forces that took on Nazi Germany and and, uh, fascist Italy in World War II uh, with great success. Very, very popular, known throughout the land. Of course, during that period, during the war, uh, young Richard Nixon was an officer in the Navy serving in the South Pacific with much less responsibility than Eisenhower had. But in the six years, six or seven years, I guess, really, since the war ended, um, Nixon had had launched himself on a political career that was just stunning in terms of how quickly he rose. He was, in 1946, elected to his first term in Congress, beating a five-term incumbent in the 12th District of California. And just four years later, in 1950, he was elected to the United States Senate in the largest landslide of any Senate candidate that year in the country. And then two years later, at the Republican National Convention, Eisenhower chooses Nixon to be his running mate for vice president of the United States. Nixon was not even 40 years old when he was chosen by Ike to be his vice presidential running mate. Extraordinary rise for Richard Nixon to come from uh, really leaving in 1945, leaving the service, as one of many, many lieutenant commanders in the Navy, and then seven years later, standing alongside a giant of his age, Dwight Eisenhower, as his, as his running mate for vice president. Can you give us a little more background on on where RN was coming from? I mean, it sounds like he ran, he was in his early 30s when he ran for Congress, and before he's 40, he's the vice president, vice presidential nominee. Um, what was his background as prior to serving in World War II, how did he get to where he was? Sure, Uh, his background prior to World War II, you know, he grew up in a uh, family of modest means, uh, first spent the first nine years of his life in Yorba Linda, California, uh, in the house that is on the grounds of the Nixon Library, a house that his father built. They moved to Whittier. Uh, His father and mother ran a grocery store with a gas station attached to it Uh, as a young, man really in his teens. One of uh, young Dick Nixon's responsibilities was to drive into Los Angeles in the middle of the night, you know, well before dawn to get the freshest produce that he could and then come back and stock it in the store and then go to school and come back after school to the store and help out in the store. Uh, He was an outstanding student, both in high school and in college. He had won a scholarship to Harvard for college, but his family could not afford to pay the cost of uh, room and board at Harvard. So he went to Whittier College, which was in his hometown, then was accepted into Duke Law School, went to Duke Law School, spent three years there, graduating near the top of his class, and then uh, came back to Whittier, California, and uh, started practicing as a lawyer, uh, a small firm, junior partner. Eventually, his name was on the door, but then when World War II came up, he decided he wanted to serve. It was something he didn't have to do because as a Quaker, he could have gotten excused from service because Quakers are, by their nature, pacifists and, and, uh, 
and against violence of any sort, including in war. But he decided he wanted to serve his country. He enlisted in the Navy, ended up in the South Pacific, uh, rose to be a lieutenant commander in the Navy. And then after the war in the Pacific was over in August of 1945, he returned to the States, uh, stayed in the Navy uh, till about the end of 1945, doing some legal work. And then um, eventually was while well, he was still on the East Coast, he and Mrs. Nixon still on the East Coast, he got a call from a fellow who was part of a committee of Republicans that were looking for a candidate to run for Congress against Jerry Voorhees, who was the five-term popular incumbent uh, Democratic representative in the 12th Congressional District. They asked uh, Nixon to come back and basically do an audition in front of this committee. He, he did. He flew back to California from um, from the East Coast, appeared before the committee in his Navy uniform because he didn't have any suits at that point. Uh, the committee was incredibly impressed and they asked him to run. Some people thought this was, uh, you know, a hopeless cause because Voorhees had been so popular and as I said, had already won five terms in that district. And they thought, well, Nixon might be yet another sacrificial lamb for the Republicans. But he worked incredibly hard, uh, debated Voorhees in debates that turned the election around and end up, ended up defeating Voorhees, much, as, much to the surprise of, I think, everybody in that district. Uh, he comes to Congress as a freshman and makes a national name for himself, incredibly, by um, his service at the request of the Republican leader in, in the House, um, serving on the House on American Affairs Activities Committee. He takes the lead in uncovering a, a communist spy who was who had been in the State Department, had been very close to Roosevelt, Alger Hiss, takes Hiss down, wins national reputation because of that, wins re-election in 1948. And then in 1950, having served only four years in the Congress, in 1950, he was only 37 years old. He runs for Senate in California against Helen Gahagan Douglas, who had also been in the Congress and the House, and uh, defeats her by a huge, huge margin, uh, hundreds of thousands of votes. As I said a moment ago, the largest uh, victory of any Senate candidate in the country. So he, he rocketed to the national scene in a way that very, very few political figures in the 20th century did, both by his work in the House in uncovering and uh, finding Alger Hiss uh, really guilty of being a Soviet spy, and in his incredible, enormous victory in that Senate in that Senate race in 1950. So, this was uh, he was a young man, and you know, it's for those of us who remember, you know, how long Mr. Nixon was on the scene nationally. Basically, almost the entire second half of the 20th century. It's, it's important to kind of reflect on just how young he was when he got started and how successful he was at such so a young quickly. age. <laughs> so it, was the vice presidency the logical next step for his career then? Was this a step up for him? I mean, you would think so, but. You know, in a lot of ways, not really, because the vice presidency throughout American history up until that point had been kind of a backwater. It was. Um, it was not considered to be a very important position. The only duties that the Constitution gives the vice president is to preside over the Senate and to cast a vote to break a tie in the event there's a tie in the Senate. Those are the only two constitutional duties the vice president has. And of course, if the president should die in office or otherwise leave office, then the vice president becomes the president. But for, for almost the entire history of the country, the vice presidency was seen as a backwater. John Adams, the first vice president of the United States, called the vice presidency the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. Uh, John Nance Garner, who was Franklin Roosevelt's first vice president, said the vice, and I clean this up for our audience, they said the vice presidency is not worth a bucket of warm spit. And my favorite was Thomas Marshall, who was Woodrow Wilson's vice president, used to tell this brief story. He said, once there were two brothers, one ran away to sea, the other was elected vice president of the United States, and nothing was heard of either of them again. 
So for a young man who had risen so quickly on the national scene, the vice presidency could be seen as a mixed bag uh, and not necessarily the next logical step uh, in Mr. Nixon's career. He had only been in the Senate a year and a half by the time he had been uh, selected by Eisenhower to be vice president. So why did he ultimately decide to accept the position to move forward? Well, I think he, you know, his name was being bandied about in the run-up to the convention as one of those people who might um, might be chosen by Eisenhower to be his vice president. And he talked with with uh, people he knew in Washington and others to get their advice on whether he should do it if he were asked. And I think the thing that that really made such an impression on him was he talked to um, Alice Longworth, who was Teddy Roosevelt's only daughter very outspoken and really one of the, the grand dames of Washington uh, through much of the, gosh, first 70 years of the 20th century. She's an amazing figure. He talked to her and, and she said to him, she said to Mr. Nixon, you know, you may just be yet another one of those vice presidents that's just kind of lost to history, but you really owe it to the Republican Party to run if you were asked. Hmm. because the Republicans had not won a presidential election since 1928. Uh, the Democrats had had control of the White House for the previous 20 years, since 1932, and uh, they were itching to get back. And Mrs. Longworth, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, felt that, you know, that, that Nixon would owe it to the party to run if he were asked. So after considering that, uh, Nixon decided if he, if he was asked by General Eisenhower to be his running mate, he would take it. But I think what really cemented the, the decision in his own mind once he made it was Eisenhower told him when they, at their very first meeting after Ike had asked Nixon to be his running mate, you know, I, I don't want you to be one of those vice presidents that doesn't do anything. He goes, I, I really want to give you a lot of responsibility and a lot of opportunity uh, to be able to step into the presidency if the need arises, because Eisenhower was uh, 63 when he became president on January 20, 1953. He was the oldest person to become president of the United States up until that time. And, uh, you know, someone at that age back then uh, was concerned, you know, am I going to be able to live out four years or eight years if I get reelected? So he wanted his vice president to take a really active role in governing uh, in the executive branch. And uh, Eisenhower was good to his word. Nixon and Eisenhower together totally transformed the vice presidency in a way that uh, I think still echoes down down to the present day. You know, every vice president since has had much more responsibility than they had ever had uh, prior to Nixon becoming vice president. Before we get into the vice presidency, do you want to speak briefly about um, why Eisenhower wanted Nixon um, on the ticket? What led him to choose choose RN, and then what role? he played, Nixon played in campaigning and really how that duo um, first came together. Sure. I, in, the, in the 52 campaign, you know, Nixon was the vigorous campaigner. And, and, you know, we have to remember that even though he had only been elected to the House six years before, he had uh, more experience in politics, as we think of it, than Eisenhower did. Eisenhower had no experience running for office. Now, Eisenhower, of course, as, as a general in the Army and as the head of the, of the Allies in World War II and Army Chief of Staff and all the other roles he had, he knew quite a bit about politics with a small p. Uh, he could not have done the jobs that he did without really understanding how to get people to um, do what you, what, what you need them to do and how to bring uh, factions together in a common purpose. So Eisenhower was very, very skilled at that. But in terms of electoral politics, he had no experience whatsoever. So Nixon, who had run that vigorous campaign in 1950, winning the Senate seat, was seen as somebody who really knew, you know, really knew how to knew how to run a tough, hard, vigorous campaign. And that's exactly what he did in 1952. Interestingly, Nixon's vice presidential candidate, candidacy was almost derailed in September of 1952 when uh, the New York Post reported that he had supposedly maintained this secret fund of money given to him by rich people back in his district that, as the paper said, allowed him to live far beyond his means. 
well, the, the charge was completely false. Uh, there was there was money raised by his supporters to enable Nixon to correspond with his constituents back home on not on the government dime, you know, instead of spending mm. government money to mail things like Christmas cards and things like that. You know, this fund did it, but it, everything in that fund was used for political purposes, entirely appropriate, nothing illegal, nothing untoward about it. But this article in the paper, you know, raised a big hullabaloo and the Democratic nominee, Adelaide Stevenson, you know, would say, oh, Nixon is corrupt and blah, blah, blah. And it looked like momentum was was growing to have Nixon get off the ticket. So Nixon gave a speech, uh, Senator Nixon gave a speech, which is known uh, in the popular parlance as the checkers speech, but which he always referred to as the fund speech where he went on national TV for half an hour, the Republican National Committee bought half an hour of television time. And he laid out exactly what his finances were, uh, what he earned, what he owed, what he owned. And to show that he his finances were completely appropriate and above board. And he talked in the speech about the, the one gift that he was not going to give out, and that was a, a dog of little Cocker Spaniel that a supporter in Texas had sent to him for Trisha and Julie, who were young at that point. Trisha was six and Julie was four. And, the, and they named the dog Checkers. That's why people call it the Checkers speech, uh, because that, that little story about the dog. Uh, the response to Nixon's speech was huge. I mean, hundreds of thousands of telegrams and, and letters and everything went into the Republican National Committee saying, keep Nixon on the ticket. You know, we support Nixon. So Eisenhower uh, eventually said, yes, we, we need to keep Nixon on the ticket. There's no reason why uh, we should get him off. He has proven that he's honest and that this fund that he was accused of having was completely above board. So Nixon uh, flew out to meet Eisenhower in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, where Eisenhower was campaigning. And Eisenhower greets him on the plane and comes down and, and says of Nixon, you know, he's my boy. And, mm -hmm. um, and, he, and, Nick, and Eisenhower also said, you know, one of the things he liked about Nixon and, and that got him to choose Nixon in 52 was the fact that he got Alger his fair and square. Uh, so Eisenhower appreciated Nixon's uh, skills as a campaigner, as a retail politician, uh, and also as somebody who was tough and was willing to fight for uh, what he believed in and willing to fight for his own survival. You know, it, Mrs. Nixon was not very happy that that uh, her husband had to go on TV and lay bare their personal finances. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think her attitude towards politics really changed after that whole event because it was... You know, she was a private person and it was, you know, who wants to go on, to, on national television in front of tens of millions of people and lay out your personal finances and, you know, and, and really how little they had. Compared yeah, to and he even has the line about her, um, her wardrobe, right? The That's right. Yeah. Uh, cloth Republican coat. cloth coat, you know, but yeah. and he says, but I always tell her she'd look good in anything. He said, <laughs> of course, that's true, because Mrs. Nixon always looked fantastic, no matter. Of course, she was always beautifully dressed. She, she was uh, a, a stunning woman. I think everybody would agree. But, um, you know, I think that uh, I think that that the way Nixon, the way Senator Nixon conducted himself during that campaign and really took the took the issues out to the people campaigned very vigorously very energetically and uh, kind of carried the the ball for in terms of um, you know political uh, denunciations of the of their opponent comparing their opponents records to, to what Eisenhower and Nixon would do uh, enabled Eisenhower to kind of stay above the fray a little bit and not have to uh, get down into some of the uh, the more vigorous parts of campaigning, shall we say. So I think the you know, it was a very, very effective team. Eisenhower won a resounding victory in 52 and again in 56. A very effective political team uh, in that 52 election and then a very effective team governing for the eight years that uh, Eisenhower was president and Mr. Nixon was vice president. Yeah, so let's go ahead and talk about the vice presidency. Uh, when the duo took office in 1953, is it immediately clear that Richard Nixon is a different kind of vice president? It absolutely is. And, and it's because of Eisenhower giving Nixon responsibilities that no other vice president in history had been given. Uh, 
in the first in the fall of 1953, you know, the administration had, had been in office less than a year. They had been inaugurated in January of 53. So in the early fall of 1953, um, President Eisenhower told Vice President Nixon he wanted him to take a um, an around the world tour to visit countries that uh, the United States either didn't have much of a relationship with or where the relationship was a little rocky uh, to visit those countries as the uh, personal representative of the president of the United States and create and undertake really a, a huge diplomatic tour. Uh, as a result, uh, president, or the, I should say the vice president and Mrs. Nixon traveled to 19 countries over 69 days, traveled 38,000 miles on this trip and not on, you know, not on jets like they have today, but on propeller military propeller planes, uh, undertook this tour that was just an absolute triumph in that it, uh, it gave, it gave Vice President Nixon a real uh, taste of what was going on in the world in the context of the Cold War. We need to remember that in that period, the United States and the Soviet Union were engaged in this Cold War for uh, dominance. The Soviets had said they were going to uh, get world dominance, and there were a lot of countries in uh, Asia and other parts of the world, Asia and Africa, other parts of the world that were kind of figuring out, you know, who are we going to pick? We're going to be on the side of the United States. We're going to be on the side of the Soviet Union. Uh, and that's what this trip, that's part of what this trip was about, to to tell these, to give these countries a clear sign that, you know, that they ought to be allied with the United States because of um, everything that we stood for, as opposed to what the Soviet Union stood for. So it was very, um, it was very, very successful from that standpoint. Mrs. Nixon was an enormous asset on those trips. You know, normally on diplomatic missions, the the spouse, and back then the spouse was always a woman, <laughs> you know, would go to teas with the with the wives of the senior government officials and things like that. But her attitude was, no, I want to go out and see the people. So she would visit hospitals and orphanages and go to markets and, you know, see the vendors and talk with the people who were buying the goods in the markets and all those sorts of things, really taking the American story, if you will, by her presence into the hearts of these countries and meeting with the with the regular folks, you know, not just the not just the high-ranking people in the government, but uh, regular people out in the in the country, and that made a huge impact um, on these visits as well. So the, the Pat and Dick team was also, you know, we talked about the Ike and Dick team. The Pat and Dick team was also enormously effective, and uh, Nixon's trip was so successful that uh, at the end of 1953, the first year of um, the Eisenhower-Nixon administration, Times wrote that, and I quote, Mr. Nixon is gaining probably the best apprenticeship to the presidency that anyone in his office has ever been afforded. And uh, it was widely thought that as, as Vice President Nixon was able to influence foreign policy to a level unlike any previous vice president in the history of the country because of that trip. And that trip was just the beginning of a number of trips that the Nixons made over the course of those eight years. They visited some 50 nations um, during those eight years, uh, bringing, uh, undertaking diplomatic missions to all of those countries in, on every continent really, except for Antarctica, um, obviously. Uh, we had good relations with penguins already, so they didn't need to go there. <laughs> but uh, you know, literally, to every continent, building building relationships with uh, countries in the midst of the Cold War, when the competition uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States was uh, incredibly intense in terms of you know which country was going to have the dominant role in the world. What were some other responsibilities that Eisenhower gave Nixon during this time in office? Well, among the other responsibilities that um, President Eisenhower gave to his vice president was the authority to preside over cabinet meetings and meetings of the National Security Council when Eisenhower was not present. Um, Ike would take vacations, uh, usually out in, in Colorado, where Mamie was from, in the summer, and he'd be absent from Washington for a number of weeks, you know, four to six weeks. Nixon would be behind him in D.C. And rather than not have cabinet meetings or anything else, of course, now you could do it by Zoom. I go 
whatever secure uh, method they use. But by then that wasn't available. So rather than the cabinet and the National Security Council not meet, uh, Vice President Nixon was given the authority to chair those meetings, which was a really big deal. No vice president had ever uh, been given that sorts of authority. And there were other other initiatives that had come up through the, the eight years that uh, reflected uh, Eisenhower's confidence in Nixon. Um, Nixon was very closely involved when Eisenhower created uh, NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Nixon uh, pretty much had the lead in the administration uh, for NASA, uh, you know, interfacing with the first astronauts and helping to define what the mission of NASA was going to be. Mm-hmm. Vice President Nixon was very, very involved in that. Um, and of course, the the relationship between the Nixons and the Eisenhowers uh, also grew to be a, pr- a pretty close one. Uh, Mrs. Eisenhower, Mamie Eisenhower and Mrs. Nixon uh, really grew very, very close. Uh, there were a number of occasions when Mrs. Nixon would stand in for Mrs. Eisenhower hosting events at the White House. Um, the Eisenhower grandchildren were about the same age as the Nixon children, and uh, that helped create a, a closer relationship as well. So, while I would, well, I would say that, you know, I'm I'm not sure that they became like close friends. Um, because there was a huge generational divide between them. Of course, they were, you know, more than 20 plus years apart in age and at different stages of their life. They had a very uh, fine working relationship that uh, also, I think, was a friendship. Nixon really looked up to Eisenhower as a mentor uh, in -hmm. terms of uh, leadership and, and, you know, how to to lead, how to delegate uh, when a president needs to get involved, when he shouldn't get involved. Uh, how to how to lead the country, how to how to persuade people to do what you need them to do. Uh, he watched Eisenhower very closely during that period and learned a lot uh, from Ike as well. And of course, um, you know, eventually we would find that Eisenhower's grandson David and Vice President Nixon's youngest daughter Julie, uh, who met uh, time, several times, obviously while their um, father and grandfather were in office, uh, eventually came together and created and created a lot more than a friendship, which, which you can talk about in a little bit. But, um, you know, there's a great picture from the 1957 inaugural of David Eisenhower uh, looking very intently at Julie. Uh, we have that exhibit, uh, we have that photograph in the exhibit. And in fact, uh, when Julie and David got engaged in um, 1967, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, General Eisenhower, uh, gave them a copy of that photograph of the two of them looking at each other in the inaugural parade stand. And uh, he inscribed it to Julian David, and we've got the original of that photograph with General Eisenhower's inscription on it in the exhibit. Uh, Julie has often said in, the, in, the, in uh, the years since that, you know, it wasn't that David so much was attracted to her at that point, but that Julie had gotten a black eye in a sledding accident a couple of days before, and he was really checking out her black eye. That's what he was checking out. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny because you can see the black eye a little bit in the in the photograph. But uh, yeah, as families, you know, as, as two families, you know, in, in, in those very high, uh, highly, um, as two families at the top of the American political structure, you know, they, they certainly came to be friends and allies and partners, no doubt about it. And twice during the eight years of the presidency, Ike suffered serious illnesses that required RN to uh, kind of take the reins. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. In uh, 1955, Eisenhower suffered a heart attack. He was out in Colorado, uh, suffered a heart attack, uh, was away for quite a number of weeks from Washington under doctor's orders to rest up. Uh, Vice President Nixon had to really take over the reins of the presidency at that point, but he had to do it in such a way that it didn't appear that he was trying to usurp the power of the presidency while Eisenhower recovered from his heart attack. And Nixon handled that situation incredibly well. Uh, For instance, both from a substantive standpoint in terms of you know not pretending to make decisions that instead of Eisenhower, 
but guiding things forward. And also just in terms of the optics of it, uh, Nixon, for instance, when he would preside over the cabinet in Eisenhower's absence during that heart attack, would always sit in the cabinet chair that he was assigned as vice president, would not go over and sit in the president's chair. Hmm. We actually have in the exhibit his um, his vice presidential cabinet chair. Uh, and that was that was a very important signal that the vice president was sending that he was just here filling in for the president while he recovered. He was not trying to, uh, as I said, usurp the powers of the presidency for himself. It was a real balancing act because, you know, you couldn't just let things slide of initiatives and programs and, and, you know, the leadership of the executive branch had to go on. But Eisenhower was under very strict doctor's orders to rest and not really uh, undergo a lot of stress. Uh, while he recovered from the heart attack. So Nixon had to handle that in a way that, uh, uh, as I said, enabled things to go forward as they should without appearing to try and become president in Eisenhower's, uh, in Eisenhower's absence. Uh, then again, in 1957, uh, Eisenhower suffered a mild stroke. Uh, he was not out of action as long as uh, he was with the heart attack, but for a few days, you know, it was touch and go whether the stroke would affect Eisenhower's ability to communicate and his cognitive ability and everything else. Fortunately, I made a very swift recovery from the stroke. It was a relatively mild stroke, and he was able to continue on. But once again, you know, Nixon was that old saying, you know, a heartbeat away from the presidency, mm -hmm. both in the heart attack and the, and the stroke. You know, at any moment, he could have become president. So he had to be, he had to be ready for that possibility but also keep the executive branch of the government and the presidency moving along uh, in, a, in a way that uh, didn't allow things to kind of fall apart in, in the president's absence. So throughout Eisenhower's term, Nixon continues to sort of raise his profile. He's um, talked about in the Times, as we said, he's on these massive um, diplomatic trips. There's uh, the kitchen debate, a lot of high profile events, and he even takes over for Eisenhower for almost two months at one point. When Nixon runs for the presidency in 1960, do voters recognize him as someone who's uniquely qualified? They really do. Polls taken uh, at the time said, uh, you know, majority of people felt that Nixon was probably better prepared than anybody else to become president. In 1960, they recognized how engaged he had been in the work of the presidency. And, uh, and all of the training on the job, if you will, that he got with his diplomatic missions overseas. Uh, what made a particular impression, you mentioned the kitchen debate in 1959 when the vice president was in Moscow and went head to head with uh, Soviet uh, leader Nikita Khrushchev uh, in a what's known as the kitchen debate because their exchange took place at an exhibit of American uh, goods and ingenuity, and they happened to be standing outside a mock-up of an American, typical American kitchen when they had this exchange between the two of them, that Nixon really very forcefully, but diplomatically, came back at Khrushchev's uh, somewhat crude and aggressive boasts about, you know, the Soviet Union would, would be superior in every way to the United States and, you know, all the rest of that Soviet bravado that made up for actually doing real achievements for their people. Um, Nixon was very forceful in countering Khrushchev and that got huge publicity back in the United States. Uh, the Nixon's visit to um, South America where their motorcade was attacked in Caracas and they came through that, uh, thank goodness, safely. Um, their lives were really at risk with this mob attacking the motorcade, but they handled the, both the president, the, both the vice president, and Mrs. Nixon handled themselves with great courage and with great dignity. That also, I think, um, was hugely responsible in the run-up to the 1960 election for people looking at Vice President Nixon as someone who had what it takes to be president. So certainly the Republican Party felt that way. He was nominated at the convention in 1960 unanimously. He really didn't have any serious opposition for that nomination in 1960 uh, and was very widely considered, I think, to be the front runner uh, going into the into the election or, you know, in the run up to the election before the campaign really started. 
he was considered, you know, the, the heir apparent, not just because he had been vice president, but because he had been an extraordinarily involved and effective vice president. Yeah, and it's it's especially interesting to when you realize that the kitchen debate happened in 59, you said. So yes. he's coming into this 1960 election with a lot of earned PR, if you will, a lot of earned media. Yes. So uh, and then he's unanimously nominated by the GOP. And I assume Eisenhower strongly supported the run. Eisenhower did strongly support the run, um, although he you know, some people felt Eisenhower should have campaigned uh, more aggressively. But the fact is, and, and Nixon would reveal this years later, uh, Eisenhower's health was not robust. And uh, Mrs. Mrs. Eisenhower actually asked uh, Vice President Nixon not to ask President Eisenhower to campaign too hard because she was really concerned about his health. So while Eisenhower was supportive of the run, uh, he was not as active in the campaign, I think, as he would have been had he been healthier. Um, he had had the heart attack. He had had the stroke. You know, at that point, he was mm, 70, 71, <laughs> um, you know, which in in the 1950s was, you know, now 70. Everybody says 70 is the new 50. Uh, back in the 1950s, 70 was 70. And you know, and the average life expectancy wasn't much longer than that, um, particularly when you had the health problems that, that Eisenhower had had. So while he certainly supported Nixon's candidacy, um, he was not able to campaign as vigorously as one might have hoped. Um, whether that would have made a huge difference in what ended up being a tight election, you know, there's no way to there's no way to tell. Let's talk about the election of 1960. A young, still young Richard Nixon goes up against a young JFK but this is far from the first time the two men had met in the arena. Tell us a little bit about their relationship up until this point. What's interesting is how the two men, uh, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, kind of went on parallel tracks, uh, even though they came from very, very different uh, places in life. Kennedy growing up in tremendous wealth in Massachusetts, Nixon growing up in much more constrained circumstances in uh, California. Uh, both serve in the Navy. Uh, Kennedy went to Harvard. Nixon had received a scholarship to Harvard, but couldn't afford to go. And they both serve in the South Pacific in the Navy. They both were elected to Congress the exact same year in 1946 and come to Congress together. When Congress, the new Congress is sworn in in January of 1947, they both are are assigned to the Education and Labor Committee in the House of Representatives. So they get to know each other pretty well um, from the beginning of their political careers. And as they go forward, they uh, continue to you know, have the sort of relationship that men of basically the same age, although from different backgrounds, but serving in the same Congress together on the same committee would develop um, over, over the following really 13 years until they ran for each other against the presidency. Interestingly, the first Nixon-Kennedy debates occurred in 1947 in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, where the, the uh, representative from that district um, wanted uh, two young members of Congress from opposite parties to come and have a debate in his district on the Taft-Hartley bill, which was a labor bill that was, that was being hotly debated in the Congress at that point. So Nixon and Kennedy were asked by this congressman to uh, travel out to his district in Pennsylvania and, and uh, appear together and have a debate. And the two of them took the train together out to McKeesport and had the debate and then took the train back to Washington together. Uh, Nixon writes in his memoirs that uh, they, they tossed I guess a point to see who would get the better bunk on the on the train on the sleeper train on the way back to Washington. Nixon says, "I won that one." You know, <laughs> um, Nixon got the the better uh, berth on the train. But um, you know, Nixon goes to the Senate in 1950. Kennedy goes to the Senate in 1952. Um, and you know, their offices were close to each other in the Capitol. They they grew to have you know what I would call a political friendship. Hmm. Um, and it was very interesting from that standpoint. And when Nixon was running in 1950 for Senate, uh, Kennedy actually showed up at his office and handed over an envelope with a thousand dollars in it saying, uh, this, this is from my father, Joseph P. Kennedy. 
Uh, he really he really wants you to win that election in California, and hopefully this will help. <laughs> so uh, so the Kennedys helped underwrite Nixon's campaign in 1950, and then when um, when RN was when when Nixon was chosen as um, Eisenhower's running mate, Kennedy wrote him a very uh, nice note. Um, I, it's very short, so I can I can read it. It said, "Dear Dick, I was tremendously pleased that the convention selected you for VP. I was always convinced that you would move ahead to the top, but I never thought it would come this quickly. You were an ideal selection, and will bring to the ticket a great deal of strength." Please give my best to your wife and all kinds of good luck to you, cordially, Jack Kennedy. So Nixon's elected vice president, his office in the Capitol, close to Kennedy's office. Kennedy's invited Vice President Mrs. Nixon to their wedding, to Jackie and Jack's wedding. Um, you know, they they had a friendly, friendly sort of relationship. Kennedy ran for, he tried to become the vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party in 1956 and did not succeed. But uh, went on in 1960 to become the Democratic nominee for president. So both of them, you know, young, Kennedy, 43 in 1960, Nixon, 47, from uh, with backgrounds that were parallel in a lot of ways in terms of certainly their political life and their service in the Navy. Uh, and then they then they meet in 1960 and what ended up being one of the closest elections in American history. Was it a vigorous campaign in 1960? Oh, it was a tough campaign. Uh, they they battled uh, throughout the entire, uh, f- you know, late summer and fall. They had the first televised presidential debates in history, four debates. Uh, the debates, uh, there's this kind of myth out there that, you know, because Nixon didn't look that great on TV in the first debate, that's what cost them the election. But the polls before the debate, and the polls taken after the debate towards the end of the campaign barely moved at all. They were neck and neck throughout the entire campaign. Uh, Nixon had pledged in his acceptance speech uh, when he received the nomination to to run uh, to campaign rather in every one of the 50 states, including Alaska and Hawaii, which had only been admitted to the union as states uh, just a year or two before. Um, unfortunately, in early September, he he banged his knee on a car getting into a car and ended up being in the hospital for two weeks with a bad infection. So he lost two weeks of campaigning during the most one of the most crucial periods of the of the whole campaign. And he insisted on still honoring his pledge to visit all 50 states. So late in the campaign, he's going to Alaska and Hawaii, which you know took a heck of a long time out of his schedule for for very few electoral votes. Um, you know, which which didn't help either. You know, from a strategic standpoint, it would have been better for him to go to maybe to Illinois or Texas, but uh, or Missouri or places like that. But it was a really hard fought campaign. The uh, two candidates represented uh, really a new generation that would be coming to the presidency. Uh, no matter who was elected, whether it was Nixon or Kennedy, they were going to be the first presidents elected in the 20th century. Um, they they would be the first presidents, to, excepting Eisenhower, obviously, who was you know general of the you know, the top guy in World War II, but the first two really to serve kind of in the trenches in World War II. Uh, so the, a big generational change was coming, no matter who won. And by the time the votes were counted, they were the the margin in the popular vote was razor thin. It was less than one hundred and twenty thousand votes nationally out of tens of millions of votes cast. But what was interesting about that election is, is that although a lot of people urged uh, the vice president to contest the election, particularly there was a lot of evidence of fraud in Illinois and Texas and Missouri. Nixon said that the, the United States cannot afford to look like it can't conduct a fair election given our status in the world, that he refused to uh, ask for a recount or contest the election in any way and conceded immediately as soon as the results were known. And that was that was a very statesmanlike sort of thing that, that he did, um, that not everybody subsequently has followed that example, but uh, it was certainly a good example and a, and a wise decision for him to make at that time. Was it uh, was it an upset or was it a surprise to Republican Party elites and to, to Nixon himself that the campaign was so close throughout the the campaigning season. 
coming off such yeah. a strong presidency with Eisenhower and, and Nixon really rising through the ranks and being such a, a media darling throughout his vice presidency. Are people shocked? I wouldn't, yeah, I no, I don't think they were shocked because, um, well, number one, you know, they could, re they knew how to read polls. So they knew it was going to be tough. Um, number two, the um, economy wasn't in the best shape in 1960, and that always has a big uh, influence on the on an election. Uh, number three, we were going from, you know, eight years under Eisenhower, the oldest president up until that point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were kind of looking for a change. And, um, you know, I think that there were a lot of people who felt that, that Kennedy, uh, who represented a new generation, could could be the the person who brought about that sort of change after eight years of Eisenhower, Nixon was obviously so closely connected to the Eisenhower administration because he was his vice president that, you know, if, if, if you were looking for change, you were going to go to somebody who wasn't, who hadn't spent the previous eight years in office. But I think that, uh, I think that, you know, the, all of those factors kind of combined together, uh, the, the economy not being in the best shape, the fact that people were looking for change, the fact that, um, you know, the eight years of the Eisenhower administration were the only eight years since 1932 that the Democrats hadn't controlled uh, the White House and they had controlled the Congress for since 1932 for all but four years during, during that long stretch of time. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, I think there was always kind of the sense that it would be a very, very close election, a very tight election. Uh, because of all those different factors. So I don't think people were necessarily surprised. I, I do think, you know, certainly certainly Vice President Nixon felt he could win and should win. Uh, he campaigned all out, as I said, in all 50 states, worked really, really hard. He certainly had, I think, I think even the most ardent Kennedy supporter would agree that Nixon had a much more substantial record of accomplishment in government than um, Senator Kennedy did. At that point, but uh, you know that's when if people are looking for a change from the status quo, that doesn't always work to your advantage. So I think that um, I think that people expected it to be a tight election, and I think that you know no matter who had won, if Nixon had won or Kennedy had won, people would have said this was a hard fought campaign and it could have gone either way. Did the campaign of 1960 and Kennedy ultimately winning the presidency sour their friendship? Where did this leave Richard Nixon and JFK? Well, I think some of the things that Kennedy said during the campaign, uh, Nixon found troublesome. For instance, Kennedy talked about there being a quote-unquote missile gap, that the United States was falling behind the Soviet Union in terms of its uh, nuclear arsenal. It wasn't true. Um, Kennedy knew it wasn't true, but the information to refute that was classified, so Nixon couldn't refute it uh, because it was classified information, national security information. He couldn't go on and say what he knew to be true to, to mm. deny what Kennedy was saying. So Nixon thought that was kind of a cheap, uh, a cheap way of making a point because it was really not true. It was it was dishonest, and he knew Nixon couldn't respond because it was a national security issue. So there were things like that, that, uh, you know, Kennedy said about Nixon that, that uh, you would not expect people who had been, you know, friends, even political friends to say. So I think there was a feeling that, that um, Kennedy's, some of Kennedy's campaign taxes, tactics were disappointing, I think, to, to Vice President Nixon. Um, but you know, I think the important thing to remember is, you know, when people talk about friends in politics, there are political friends and then there are real friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, political friends, if you're a colleague with somebody, even though you may be on the different side of the aisle, uh, you can be friendly and uh, care about the other person as a person. Um, you're not necessarily bosom buddies, as we used to say. And I think that the Kennedy-Nixon relationship was more along those lines. You know, I wouldn't call them like close personal friends, but they were certainly good political friends. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that Nixon was disappointed in, in some of the way Kennedy conducted the campaign in 1960 and things that he said and did that were kind of unfair um, and not right. For instance, talking about a missile gap when in fact there was no missile gap. 
But, uh, you know, Nixon, if anything, was a realist. Um, and, you know, once Kennedy was elected, uh, Nixon gave a very gracious statement uh, saying he hoped that the new president-elect would succeed. Uh, Kennedy came to uh, Key Biscayne after the election where Nixon was uh, vacationing, you know, kind of recovering from the rigors of the campaign and, um, you know, said that uh, to kind of mend fences and, and show unity in the face of the end of the election. And Kennedy's press secretary, uh, Pierre Salinger, when he was asked, you know, why, why did Kennedy go to meet Nixon and keep this game? Uh, Salinger said, uh, first, he wants to congratulate the vice president on the campaign he conducted. And secondly, he wants to resume the cordial relations which existed between them during their 14 years in Congress. Uh, so, and I think that's a good way to put it, the way Salinger said, that resume the cordial relations. Uh, you know, they, they, uh, they had a very cordial relationship the whole time that they were in Congress together. They certainly, it, it wasn't like some of the bitter rivalries you see today where it's so personal between people mm -hmm. on opposite sides of the aisle. You know, they've, they've, they disagreed on a lot of things. They agreed on some other things. Um, but it, you know, it wasn't really personal. It was, that was politics. And then you could have a, you'd have a perfectly cordial relationship with somebody, even if you didn't agree with them, or even if you're on the opposite side of the political aisle. And, uh, that's kind of where, where it was left after, after that election. Of course, Vice President Nixon had the very unhappy duty as president of the Senate. It was his job to preside over the Senate with the for the counting of the electoral votes, which is done in a formal ceremony in early December, and uh, to declare who was elected president. So mm -hmm. Mr. Nixon had to stand up there as the presiding officer of the Senate and announce the results of the electoral votes and declare that John Fitzgerald Kennedy had been elected president of the United States and Linda Baines Johnson had been elected vice president of the United States. One of those days where he probably would have preferred to stay home and let somebody else do it. But, you know, that was it was his duty to do it as the presiding officer of the Senate. And and he did it. So did the cordial relations uh, resume when President Kennedy was in office? Did he seek advice or, or counsel from Nixon at all? He did from time to time, you know, not frequently, but he did so very soon um, after he after Kennedy became president and in April of 1961 with the disastrous Bay of Pigs uh, debacle where um, the United States supported some uh, Cuban freedom fighters, if you will, in what was an invasion that the United States was supposed to support of Cuba to overthrow the communist leader who had taken over the Cuban government, Fidel Castro. Uh, it was a disaster, a complete military disaster. And Kennedy was under intense criticism for it. Uh, he, he called both Eisenhower and Nixon and asked Nixon to uh, come in and meet with him in the Oval Office. And, you know, they had a, they had a frank discussion um, in the aftermath of, of the disastrous results of the Bay of Pigs about, you know, just how tough the job was. And, and you know, Kennedy said he realized in ways he didn't fully appreciate before he became president how tough this job was. And he even told Nixon, you know, if if, if uh, things continue to go the way they've been going the last few days, I'm not sure I'm going to be here four years from now, uh, meaning that he wasn't sure he could win re-election in 1964. So I'm not aware of other times where where they where there was that level of consultation uh, that there was in the aftermath in, of the Bay of Pigs in April of 1961. But um, certainly there may have, you know, they probably ran into each other at different events and things, but it was it was that period in '61 where uh, after the Bay of Pigs, where Kennedy really called on Nixon, I think, just to just to kind of commiserate about how tough it was, uh, particularly when things go go wrong. And you know, as Harry Truman said, the buck stops here. And when you're the president, if things ended a disaster, it's on you. And um, you know, I think Kennedy wanted to commiserate about that a little bit with with Nixon, who you know obviously had a, a lot more experience in the presidency as vice president than, um, than Kennedy had up until that point, obviously. Well, I would imagine the news of President Kennedy's assassination hit the Nixons especially hard as they had known the Kennedys personally for so long. 
Do we have any records of how that unfolded? Yeah, um, kind of in one of those curious things that happens in history, President Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963 in a motorcade in Dallas. Uh, Mr. Nixon had been in Dallas the day before and had actually left Dallas that morning to return to New York. And he was in a cab. Excuse me, I got a cough. <coughs> I'll start that again. And Mr. Nixon was in a cab coming back from the airport um, to his uh, office in New York um, when when they heard on the radio that uh, President Kennedy had been assassinated. And I think Mr. Nixon took it, uh, the president, or, or I should say Mr. and Mrs. Nixon, the Nixons, you know, took that, took it hard because they had known the Kennedys a very long time. And it wasn't just the assassination of a president. It was the assassination of someone they knew. It was the murder of someone they knew. So I, it had to hit the Nixons on several levels, you know, the concern for the country, obviously, when such an event occurs, but also the concern for the Kennedy family. And um, Nixon wrote the, the next day a, a very warm letter to Mrs. Kennedy. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but he starts off saying, Dear Jackie, in this tragic hour, Patton, I want you to know that our thoughts and prayers are with you. While the hand of fate made Jack and me political opponents, I always cherish the fact that we were personal friends from the time we came to the Congress together in 1947. That friendship evidenced itself in many ways, including the invitation we received to attend your wedding. And he went on to uh, say that if in the days ahead we could be helpful in any way, we shall be honored to be at your command. And Mrs. Kennedy, uh, amazingly, just a few weeks later, uh, sent a handwritten note back to um, back to the former vice president. And this is short, and I will read the whole thing because I think it's just kind of amazing. She writes, Dear Mr. Vice President, I do thank you for your most thoughtful letter. You two young men, colleagues in Congress, adversaries in 1960, and now look what has happened. Whoever thought such a hideous thing could happen in this country? I know how you must feel, so long on the path, so closely missing the greatest prize. And now for you, all the question comes up again, and you must commit all you and your family's hopes and efforts again. Just one thing I would say to you, if it does not work out as you have hoped for so long, please be consoled by what you already have, your life and your family. We never value life enough when we have it. And I would not have had Jack live his life any other way, though I know his death could have been prevented and I will never cease to torture myself with that. But if you do not win, please think of all that you have. With my appreciation and my regards to your family, I hope your daughters love Chapin School as much as I did. Sincerely, Jacqueline Kennedy. Uh, the raw emotion that comes through in that letter from Mrs. Kennedy, uh, I think is, it's, reflects, you know, I said earlier, they had more of a political friendship than a personal friendship. Of course, Mr. Nixon writes in the letter to Mrs. Kennedy that, that he considered it to be a personal friendship. But I think the raw, as I said, the raw emotion that comes through in, in Mrs. Kennedy's letter, I think reflects uh, in, a, in a very real unvarnished way, uh, the relationship between the two uh, men and the two families in a way that's very poignant and I think very touching. And I yeah. think that, and I think that, you know, if you fast forward a few years to when, when Richard Nixon becomes the president and one of the, one of the things that he and Mrs. Nixon did was invite Mrs. Kennedy and her children to come to the White House for a private visit when the official portraits of the president, Mrs. Kennedy, were ready to be unveiled. The only time Mrs. Kennedy returned to the White House after she left following the assassination of the president uh, also speaks to the kind of relationship that, uh, that they had. You know, adversaries, as she said in the letter, uh, and as, as they both said in their letters, you know, political adversaries, but... Uh, you know, you kind of put that, you, you put that aside, I think, when as Nixon himself might say, when you're, when you're in the arena and you have a worthy opponent, there's a respect, I think, 
for your opponent, uh, even though you may not agree with him and even though you hope you would you wish you had beaten him, uh, there's a respect for your fellow uh, competitor in that arena. And I think that is shown in both of these letters. While President Nixon and President Kennedy's relationship is the first truly bipartisan pair that we've covered in this series, but next episode we'll be talking about another friendship that transcended party lines when we tackle the very unique dynamic between Presidents H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Yes, we will. President George H.W. Bush and uh, President Bill Clinton had a surprising relationship, I think, uh, particularly after uh, Clinton beat Bush in the 1992 election, an election that Bush felt he should have been able to win. Uh, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how their relationship uh, developed uh, after they were both out of office. I can't wait to learn more about that next week in the fifth episode of the President's Club series. Thank you for listening to the Nixon Now podcast. Our guest today was the curator and author of the President's Club special exhibit, Bob Bostock. On behalf of the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Allie Fitzgerald-Smith. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Nixon Foundation. Please subscribe to the podcast and tune in next week for another episode of the President's Club series. 